0: Tell the DJ to queue up ZZ Top, because we're talking about investing trends with legs. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So everybody loves a good trend, right? Sure. We're investors. We love a good trend. (laughs) And lately, I don't know if you've noticed. As the market has continued its grim slide of 2022, that doesn't stop potential trends from emerging here or there. And I wanted to talk with you about how to figure out which trends have legs and which ones don't. And I'll just start with an example of one that I think, for me anyway, doesn't really have legs. And it goes under the umbrella of because of reasons. This industry has sold off tremendously. And so, therefore, it presents an opportunity for investors because it's trading below where it should be. And the one that leaps to mind for me that's come up several times over the past two plus years is the cruise industry. And that may be a good short term opportunity for some people. I'm not interested in that because. (laughs) it's not an industry that i think has great long-term tailwinds behind it. um i don't mean to pick on the cruise industry, but you know what i'm talking about, right? like there there are some trends that get a lot of attention, but it's for short-term reasons.
1: yeah, yeah, i mean i'm glad i'm glad you you said short-term reasons cuz i i do I, I agree with what you're saying. i think the way i typically try to break this um down in my own mind and I've talked before about the way the way that I invest. I mean, I as a long-term investor, someone who I typically like to be like a net buyer of stocks. I like to buy. I don't really like selling. So typically, I'm looking for companies that I feel like are going to be relevant for decades, right? And so, following or figuring out and following the long-term trend and um, in, in differentiating that between what I would call a short-term catalyst. And so, I, I think that the cruise example there is a good example of something where there's a short-term catalyst, right? I mean, before 2020, I don't know that cruise ships were really a place where I was interested in investing. And I think, I mean, it sounds like, sounds like you feel the same way. Right, just not a market, not an industry that you're all that all that interested in, um, and, and so I think that's that's how I start to at least look at this because you could look at the cruise liners, for example, and say, well, yeah, I'm not all that interested. But by the same token, it does feel like there's a short-term catalyst in play that could result in value for shareholders if things continue to improve. Right? I mean, the travel industry in general has been shellacked. Um, but things are starting to come back, and I mean, there were there were a lot of questions early on in, in 2020 as to whether these these major cruise liners would even survive, um, and they, they, they did do a good job, I think, of, of figuring out ways to survive and keeping their balance sheets in uh, working order there. But yeah, I think for me, you see the benefit maybe of a reopen and then say, all right, well, the cruise, cruise liners could benefit from that, and the stocks then may start to reflect that optimism, but beyond that short-term catalyst. Is there something there? You know, do you see more people clamoring to go on cruises as the years go by? Uh, I'm not convinced that's the case. I think it's it's a relevant industry. I think there are people who love to take cruises, but I think there are also a lot of a lot of risks that come with something like that. So for me, it's trying to think about what direction the world is headed. And I and I'll be honest with you. And I mean, I'm sure you probably can relate to this as a parent. I I look at my kids. I, I have two daughters. They're sophomores and juniors in high school. I, I look to them. I look to them and their friends and what they're doing, what they're watching, the apps that they're using, ways that they're conducting their business. That to me starts to tell a little bit more about consumer behavior, trends that may be forming, things that matter to younger generations that will continue to matter even as they get older. Um, so yeah, that's, I typically try to break it down between looking at a long-term uh, trend versus a short-term catalyst in and, and figuring out ways to sort of discern between the two.
0: If you think back to last year in the late spring, one of the big trends getting a lot of attention was what was referred to as the Great Reopening. Yeah, It seems like we're at that point again, as Omicron levels continue to drop, vaccines continue to rise, more and more businesses. We talked about this last Friday on Motley Fool Money about some of the biggest tech companies in America opening up their offices, uh, mask mandates coming down. Um, you were talking to uh, the folks at Cheddar, and I, look, I, I, I'm happy to share Jason Moser um, as a resource with other <laughs> media outlets. You're welcome, Cheddar. Um, but seriously, you were you were talking to them. About this trend, weren't you? Uh, Yeah, yeah, we were. We were talking about reopening, um,
1: and and yeah, it it it, to me it it feels kind of like reopening 2.0. I mean, we did kind of go through a reopening before, where I I think a lot of us kind of started getting back out there and, and and you know resuming sort of somewhat normal behavior. Um, and this is kind of the next iteration of that, where I think the the walls start to come down, and and even more people start to start to go out and really get their lives back to normal. And and um, yeah, we were talking about ideas, investments, companies that will benefit from this this next phase of, of reopening, and then um, you, you what what kind of future they may have even beyond that? Because I would look at reopening as definitely a short term catalyst, right? I mean, this is not something where the long-term trend is for our economy to reopen, um, and so for me, that doesn't that doesn't mean that there there aren't uh, there aren't great ideas out there. That doesn't mean there there's there's not money to be made. But by the same token, and I think you know, we said this a lot when we were talking about the that sort of stay-at-home stock um, theme that we that we were delving into a couple of years ago. You want to make sure that regardless. These are businesses that you feel like will continue to do well even beyond the short term catalyst, right? Because this short term catalyst will end, right? And then you want to make sure that you're not left holding the bag with a business that maybe isn't going to continue to benefit beyond just that catalyst. And so for me, there are are a lot of different ways you can look at the companies uh, that will benefit from this. I mean, you're talking about incremental traffic um, in in all sorts of places, people going back to work, uh, office buildings getting busier, the areas around office buildings getting busier, malls getting busier. So, what kinds of companies can you expect to benefit there? And and I mean, to me, there are a lot of different ways you can look at it, right? I think travel is one that stands out immediately just because so many people are ready to go do something. And we, we saw some of the some of the some of the snapback and travel uh, earlier through the course of this uh, last couple of years, but it does look like things continue to get even better. And I was looking through Booking Holdings, for example, uh, their most recent earnings call. They were talking about the fact that they are seeing the trends. Continuing to move in the right direction, they said the first half of February they they saw meaningful improvement across all of their regions compared to January. But then they made this reference to gross bookings. They said gross bookings for the summer, right? Gross bookings for the summer are higher than they were at this time in 2019. So I mean that's encouraging for a number of different reasons. I mean it it sounds like a lot of people are planning trips. Um, I know that we are. You know we're we're planning a trip, and I mean I'm going to be going a few places here over the summer as well. Looking forward to that. Uh, but but when you think about just the fact that gross bookings for the summer are higher than they were at this time in 2019, that's really encouraging. And the nice thing about travel is it's truly a global opportunity. And and frankly, I think travel is just going to be it's going to continue to be a long term trend uh, that investors can can benefit from. So booking holding stands out as, as one way uh, to, to to look at at this
0: reopen 2.0. It is interesting, the the difference, as you said, the long-term trend versus the short-term catalyst, because ultimately, there has to be something sustainable. There has to be something um, about an underlying business that, that we as investors can see as a pathway for growth. Yeah. Um, which, and this may be just my preference, I always prefer Organic growth as opposed to growth through acquisition. Um, it's not to say that that doesn't work. There are plenty of businesses that have rewarded shareholders by going the route of acquisition. But to me, it's just uh, preferable to see a business like, um, you know, I've talked before about Home Depot and Lowe's, and not that they do a tremendous amount of increasing their store count year over year, but you look at the way that they've uh, Grown out their online presence, their deliveries, that sort of thing. Um, that that's just easier for me to wrap my head around.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I think Home Depot and Lowe's two very good examples of businesses that I think could certainly benefit here over the next several months as as uh, consumer traffic continues to pick up, right? I mean, we've seen the strength in the housing market over the past couple of years, and and that's that's the neat thing about housing is whether you own or you rent. Home improvement, maintenance—all that stuff is always on the table, right? That's to me one of the most obvious long-term trends out there because everybody needs a roof over their head. And so you look at Home Depot and Lowe's—the um, quarters that they just chalked up. I mean, to be able to maintain their gross margins in a time like this, when inflation really is front and center, I mean. Lowe's actually expanded their gross margin very, very modestly. Home Depot saw a little bit of pressure, but but overall, they've really been able to maintain prices very well and pass those those uh, costs along to consumers. And I think part of that is just due to the market that it serves, the nature of the market that it serves. it is it is it is kind of a necessary. Right, it's a necessary market, and then they love to to throw the the statistics out there that uh, that 50% of the homes here in the U.S. are over 40 years old. I mean, a lot has changed in 40 years, right? The ways that the ways that we build houses. The ways that we that we repair our homes and update and improve our homes, and so you know what that ultimately means is you get this massive installed housing base out there just in this country alone that really requires a lot of what Home Depot and Lowe's are selling, and so they may not be the sexiest names in the world, and they may not light the world on fire. In the near term, but when you stretch the chart out, you look at the way these companies perform through the years—three, five, ten years. I mean, they are just tremendous performers, and and Lowe's in particular, you look at what Marvin Ellison has done there. I mean, that has been just nothing short of spectacular, and and I think what we've got now is really two businesses there in Lowe's and Home Depot that you and I have likened before to MasterCard and Visa. It's almost like, a, which one should I pick? Well, Why bother choosing? You could actually own both and get away with it just fine. It's not a bad idea, actually.
0: <laughs> not a bad idea at all. Um, last thing, and then I'll let you go. When you think about long-term trends, I suppose there are a couple of different ways you can think about them. One is to try and predict where the future is going. And be right not only about the direction but the timing of how soon we're going to get there. Um, I was on David Gardner's uh, Rule Breaker Investing podcast recently, and uh, on an episode that was set in the year 2052, and one of the uh, jokes we made on that was that uh, self-driving cars still not a thing in (laughs) 2052, and it Uh, may not be. By the way, yeah. So that's one way to do it. Like, okay, this is where the world is going. But another way to do it is to look at trends right now and say, okay, it, do I think this is going to be here in 20 years? You can say that about individual products. Um, you can also say that about industries. Um, it's why whenever you know someone has a, a new baby and it's like, oh, I want to buy a stock for them, my answer is always Starbucks, because mm. I know that the way we drink coffee in 50 years is going to look a whole lot like the way we drink it now. <laughs> yeah. And if it looks any
1: different, Starbucks is probably going to be one of the companies that is innovating and iterating there, so you you probably win either way. Um, Yeah, I think to me, one of the the trends that I think is front and center right now for a lot of people is work, right? I mean, exactly how we're going to be working, we're talking about stay-at-home, now we're talking about reopen. I mean, it's it's been it's been a weird two years, right? And I mean, there are offices that never closed down, and then there are other offices that just have closed down completely. And you wonder what exactly the future holds. And so I look to a business like Microsoft, for example, and I think it's very telling that you've got a lot of these big tech companies that are reopening their offices. They're 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 eager and excited to do that and i think that's for a number of reasons i mean i think that you've seen you've seen some of the ceos of these businesses uh, twitter for example i mean they're talking about the fact that yes remote work is available but it it is harder it makes things a lot more difficult and i'm sure probably You know, you run it. You run into some challenges where where remote work uh, does make things harder. Uh, But by the same token, there are a lot of folks that like the convenience and sort of being able to go do what they want to do when they want to go do it. Um, It it certainly expands that work schedule. So for me, it's kind of I look at the the absolutes as being probably what you want to avoid. Right? If you're saying, well, we're just going to be a virtual only. Company, well, that you're probably leaving something on the table there. But if you say that, well, everybody has to be at the office all the time, well, you're probably you're, you're leaving some talent out there that you might not be able to get otherwise. And so, to me, the hybrid work environment is really that. That to me, what seems like that's what it seems like the future holds. And so, you look at a company like Microsoft, a company that's responsible for getting so many. Of those tools that we've been able to use, right? Whether you're Slack or Zoom or Microsoft Teams, I mean, Microsoft Teams and all of the tools that Microsoft uh, provides really do—they help enable what ultimately I think we're going to see is, is, you know, the hybrid work environment where a lot of a lot of folks uh, have the opportunity to to do it however they want to do it. But but companies still have uh, sort of a process and a philosophy in place that leaves everybody feeling included, right? Um, and I think that's probably one of the bigger challenges. I think that's going to be one of the things that companies will figure out as time goes on, is managing the remote and the, the, the physically present workforce together. Um, not saying that's an easy thing to do, but I think that's going to be something that companies are going to have to do, uh, because to me, again, it feels like if you take it to the extremes, if you go absolutes one way or the other, uh, that to me seems, seems to open up more challenges uh, than opportunities
0: the longer you play that out. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. Remember back in high school when your English teacher taught you how to write a thesis statement? It's the main idea of your essay, and you were not going to get an A without a strong thesis statement. Well, it turns out that's one of those skills that comes in handy for investors like you and me. Here to talk through the nuts and bolts of an investment thesis is Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Alicia Alfieri. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, before we get into some of the key questions that can go into an investment thesis, why do you think an exercise like this is helpful for us as investors?
2: First, when we think of an investment thesis, it's really a summary of what you think of the company and why you think it makes a good investment case, as well as some of the risks. And it's really important, particularly now when we're seeing a lot of market volatility. The idea here is that it'll help you cut through all of the noise of that market volatility and focus on signals uh, for your company and hopefully stop you from selling a company that's actually pretty good.
0: So, I know that uh, you've been using Duolingo. Um, uh, Let's use that as an example here and some of the key questions that people can ask when they're looking to build an investment thesis for any business, for any stock. And it starts with really knowing the company.
2: And this one sounds like a no-brainer, but there are actually companies out there that require a little bit extra time and research to be able to answer questions like, what does this company sell do? What problem are they solving? Who are their customers? And how do they make money? That's really fundamental to understand. Um, If we we use uh, Duolingo as an example here, Duolingo is a global um, mobile learning uh, platform with the mission to develop the best educational content in the world and make it universally available. Uh, So they offer a gamified approach to learning over 40 languages, and they offer a lot of different solutions here. So they have their flagship Duolingo Learning Language app, which is free. They have Duolingo uh, Plus, which is uh, a subscription. Duolingo English Test, which is a proficiency exam, and Duolingo for Schools. And essentially, the problem that they're solving here is making education accessible to the mobile generation. Um, and their lessons are pretty effective. So according to their internal study, users with five Duolingo units were as proficient in reading and listening as students with four college semesters of language classes. And then in terms of how do they make money, again, really important to understand, uh, they make most of their money from their subscription product. The rest comes from uh, the, the freemium site so, or the freemium app. So those ad based revenues, and revenues from their English tests.
0: Every business has competition, so obviously it is worth spending a minute or two when you're putting together an investment thesis thinking about competitive advantages that a business might have
2: look at the competition within the industry. Is their product or service sticky? Does the business have network effects, right? And so when we talk about network effects, think of something, a platform like uh, Facebook, right? Where you have this virtuous cycle of, of data, which makes your users use it more, which brings in more data, which allows you to get more Uh, insights, which, again, makes that that product even more valuable. Um, In terms of Duolingo, so they are in a highly competitive industry. Lots of options to learn new languages, whether it's uh, virtual or in-person classes, other apps and websites, and there are substitution items that that you could use as well, like translator apps. Um, But what advantages does Duolingo have? So they have a strong brand. They have had over 500 million downloads and their flagship app is the top grossing app in the education category on Google Play and the Apple App Store. And so this strong brand recognition really helps to drive organic growth for them. They also have strong network effects. So 41.7 million monthly active users, which includes a US contingent that actually outnumbers total US high school foreign language learners, which is a massive amount here. They have over a half billion exercises completed daily on the platform. And as a result of that strong network, Duolingo believes they have the largest collection of language learning data. And they feed this virtual cycle of their network by using their collection of data to make learning experiences more efficient and differentiated for its users. In terms of platform stickiness, so over 50% of daily active users have used the app for more than seven days in a row. And 1 million users have an active streak of longer than 365 days. So pretty impressive there. But there are some tricky parts here. For paid subscribers, it's a bit more complicated. About 40% of annual subscribers renew their subscriptions after a year, while about 9% of monthly subscribers renew their subscription after one year. So, they've got some work to do here.
0: At The Motley Fool, we're not just interested in the business, we're interested in the management as well. So, it's worth spending time figuring out, hey, who are the people running this business?
2: Absolutely. So take a look at who are the co-founders? Who is leading the company? Do they have a long-term vision? And what's their culture like? Remember, their employees are what make a vision come to life. So if employees don't buy in, it's going to be really hard for a company to grow. Uh, For Duolingo, it was founded by Luis Van An and Severin Hacker, uh, two engineers who met at Carnegie Mellon. So Luis is the CEO and director. Severin is the CTO and director. So they're both heavily involved in the company, which we really like. Um, For Luis, growing up in Guatemala, he saw how access to education can truly transform lives. And when he met his Spirit in Severin, the two embarked on creating an accessible, effective, and intelligent learning solution. Um, And so while they've started with languages, their long-term goal is to have language learning be just one of the education solutions that they offer. And they've already started along this path. They have their literacy app, Duolingo ABC, which teaches children how to read, and they're working on an app to teach elementary school math. And then for culture, I like to look at websites like Glassdoor to see what employees think. Do they like working there? Are they dedicated to the vision? Uh, So, on Glassdoor, 93% of employees would recommend Duolingo to a friend and 97% approve of the CEO. So, pretty solid results here.
0: We say all the time, investing is about the future. So, at some point when you're putting together an investment thesis, You got to check a couple of boxes in terms of what does the future look like for this business?
2: Yes. So think about the future. What's the market opportunity for them? Can they grow? How can they grow? And are there any broader trends that can help or hurt the company in the future? So for Duolingo, they're a player in a growing market, the mobile learning space. So preferences for convenience, and on-demand services have driven a lot of consumers toward mobile solutions, right? Whether it's shopping or learning. And COVID accelerated the usage for mobile learning. And, And though the The growth will will probably edge away from some of that COVID highs. It's still expected to grow. Uh, So global language learning spending, both online and offline, reached 61 billion in 2019 and is projected to grow to 115 billion by 2025. Within this market, online learning is growing fast from 12 billion in 2019 to 47 billion in 2025. So perhaps the convenience and flexibility of mobile learning as well as smartphones adoption overall is broadening the demand for that language learning product. And since Duolingo's annual revenues were about $161 in 2020, they're only about 1.3% of the current market for online language learning, which gives them a ton of room to grow. And they have a plan to grow, which is really important. They think that they could grow by increasing the number of users, converting free users to those paid subscription users, um, increasing subscription stickiness, which we already talked about, and expanding their solutions uh, beyond that language learning.
0: We want to be bullish when we're thinking about a stock that we're considering adding to our portfolio. But at some point, you kind of have to put on the bear hat and think about what are the risks to this business?
2: Because every investment has risks. That's the nature of the beast. And if you can't find one, you need to research more. Be curious, play the part of the skeptic, and ask, what could go wrong. This is especially important in terms of, uh, in times of market volatility. So for Duolingo, we already talked about some some of the issues that they have here operating in a highly competitive environment, and subscription retention numbers that could be better. But there's also another issue we didn't talk about, and that's low switching costs. What that means is that it doesn't really cost a lot of money, and it's not a, a huge hassle for users to simply change apps or take an in-person class instead. And so that is another risk.
0: Okay, so you've clearly put in some work on Duolingo. Uh, you know. Uh, uh... Tell me how the story ends. Is this a stock you're adding to your portfolio, or is it kind of on your watch list for right now?
2: Well, so right now it's more on my watch list. So at the end of this process, what I like to do is is summarize and actually, hey, what would the investment thesis look like? So in this case, I would say Duolingo has a neat gamified approach to learning, which has helped the company build a strong brand and benefit from strong network effects and some platform stickiness. With these competitive advantages, strong tailwinds from online education trends, a large market to expand into, and a plan for expansion, Duolingo is an intriguing company. But subscription retention statistics and those low switching costs give me a bit of a pause for right now. So I'm going to continue to follow them and research them because I find this company fascinating and I really value leadership's vision and plans for
0: the future. We've got more information about putting together your own investment thesis in our show notes, so check those out when you get a chance. Alicia Alfieri, thanks so much for being here.
2: thanks for having me.
0: That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, three analysts share some of the biggest investing lessons they've learned over the past 20 years. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and a Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.